Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Frank Kane. Frank is a popular online instructor in the fields of machine learning, big data, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence. With 500,000 students around the world, his company, Sundog Education, has been teaching online since 2015. Prior to Sundog, Frank spent nine years working at Amazon's headquarters in Seattle, where he helped create their recommender system as a senior engineer and as a senior manager for both the Amazon website and for their subsidiary, IMDB. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, just to kick this off, I'm curious, where did you find your passion for teaching machine learning and cloud computing? Oh, man. Uh, it kind of just happened, you know? I mean, it's kind of like one of those like things that just kind of like stumble into your lap and like you discover that you like it and you're good at it, you know? So awesome. kind of the story there is, um, you know, I spent nine years at Amazon, like you mentioned, and, you know, I had a great time there, but ultimately I had to leave for family reasons. And so I'm like, well, okay, what am I going to do now? Uh, I guess I'll try self-employment, see how that works out, yeah? So tried a bunch of different things, you know, doing freelance software development, doing some contract gigs, and uh, eventually a gig came my way of like doing curriculum development for machine learning and data science. I'm like, well, I know a thing or two about that. That's what I did at Amazon. Um, and when I was at Amazon, you know, giving presentations and training new employees and things like that was something that I really enjoyed and was somewhat good at. Uh, so I gave it a shot and yeah, it just kind of took off. So um, just kind of a happy accident, really. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that works for me. Thanks for sharing. And I was also curious, uh, what would you consider your first success with machine learning or cloud computing or both? First success? Uh, that's mm -hmm. going back to like when I first started Amazon, really. So All right. uh, when they brought me on there, um, they threw me into what was called the personalization team. And this was like their very early recommender system. So, you know, when you go to Amazon and you see people who bought this also bought, or their top sellers that are recommending stuff to you, or their recommender engines where they're actually recommending products based on your past history. Uh, that was the stuff that I was thrown into, kind of like, you know, into the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely a success story. I mean, that was a huge portion of Amazon's revenue and continues to be for this day. And uh, to be part of a small team that developed that in its early days was really exciting. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I am also curious, after putting 500,000 students through your training programs, do you see any patterns on what it takes for students to become job ready and record breaking time? Ooh, record breaking time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a question I get all the time from students, right? Because, you know, they come into these courses, you know, wanting to improve their careers or improve their job prospects. And, you know, a common misconception is that just taking the course in itself is enough or just getting a certification exam in itself is enough. Um, you know, what mm -hmm. I tell them is first of all, work backwards from the employers that you're going after. Right. So, Different countries have different cultures and different expectations with their employers. So for example, I have a lot of students in India where certifications are really, really important. Here in the US, people care more about your experience than what you've actually done, right? So the mm. fast track is gonna change depending on where you are. Uh, but in the US, you know, speaking from my experience as a hiring manager, it's that experience that counts the most. So yes, you need to learn the skills, but then you need to apply those skills somehow. Go do some Kaggle challenges, do some freelance work. Uh, whatever it takes, you know, just show that you can actually build stuff using what you learned. And that's the stuff in your resume and stuff that you want to talk about in your interviews that will actually lead to a job. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's super actionable. And uh, as far as trends that you see for learners, uh, where do they often get stuck? And what should they try and avoid when they're kind of first starting out with um, maybe your answer is different for machine learning and cloud computing? 
Um, yeah, I mean, obviously machine learning is a little bit more challenging in terms of like algorithms and math, although that's quickly changing, right? You know, with AutoML, it's getting super, super easy in some of these higher level services and whatnot. Um, but yeah, a lot of people come into it with like not really the proper background in engineering or programming in general. So, you know, I do see a lot of students coming in who have like never written a Python script before in their life or anything for that matter, like JavaScript, no programming experience at all. Mm. And they expect to, you know, learn machine learning, you know, in a week. <laughs> and yeah. They get frustrated when that doesn't happen, right? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I would say, you know, make sure that you start with the fundamentals, you know, take a good introductory Python course, um, understand linear algebra, at least, you know, before you try to dive into the world of machine learning and data science. Excellent. And when it comes to cloud computing, how uh, is it, is it real similar, like focus on the fundamentals uh, yeah, and then kind yeah. of branch out from there? Or how would you? Yeah, we have a couple of courses that we offer on AWS certifications, and one is for machine learning, and one is for uh, what's now called the Certified Data Analytics Exam, formerly known as Big Data. They're, they're transitioning that right now. Mm -hmm. And kind of the biggest uh, stumbling point that I see for students is that they go straight into these advanced specialty exams without doing the more uh, fundamental ones first. So it's the same advice there. Make sure you start with the fundamentals first, like get a cloud practitioner uh, exam under your belt before you try to do one of these like advanced specialty exams, and you'll life will be a lot better that way. <laughs> Excellent. Um, why do you think that people love learning from your courses? Ooh, um, gosh, yeah, this is something I thought about a lot because, you know, why did this take off for me, right? Like, why do I have a half a million people around the world learning this stuff from me? It's, a, it's um, amazing. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard of that, actually. <laughs> if you like picture that many people like in a football stadium or something, it could even hold them all. Like it's nuts. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. bizarre. It's surreal. Um, but you know, reflecting back on like how how this happened, part of it was just being in the right place at the right time. Quite honestly, you know, like I developed these courses about three years ago when online learning was kind of like just beginning to take off, and you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people who actually had experience in these fields making comprehensive online courses. Mm. Um, but beyond that, you know, it really comes down a lot to presentation skills. So, you know, having the ability to speak clearly, having a voice that people actually want to listen to for eight hours straight and, you know, being a little bit informal and fun, you know, not getting too bogged down in like, you know, the mathematical details and keeping a practical focus, I think is important as well. And that's kind of mm. led to the appeal of some of these courses. Excellent. Yeah. I think there's any course creators out there that can certainly benefit from that. Um, what would you say is the biggest piece of knowledge that you collected when you discovered the difference between building innovation and building a business? Ooh. Yeah. So like I got thrown into that really quickly. Right. So, uh, you know, when I left Amazon, like I went from the world of like building stuff that people told me to build for the most part to, Oh my gosh, I need to feed my family somehow, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I did learn some of this at Amazon, you know, like they were very good about making sure that everybody had kind of a business focus and a customer focus. So, you know, if you were just an engineer who was just, I'm going to do what I'm told, you were, you're not going to be successful at Amazon. So mm -hmm. some of that I got to learn just by being around, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and like learning through osmosis as to how people like that run a business. Hmm. Um, well. But the main difference is if you're not building the right thing, it doesn't matter. Right. So it's very tempting to work, um, work forward from the technology that you know and love and build a product around the technology that you personally find interesting. But instead, you need to work backward from what the market needs and what the market wants, right? Mm. So although I would love to, you know, for example, make an online course on astrophotography because that's my hobby, I know there's not a huge audience for that, right? Yeah. But there is a huge audience for people that want to learn AI and machine learning and cloud computing. So, you know, 
obviously that's where I'm going to put my efforts because that's what the world needs and wants. And there's kind of a hole in the market there, right? So mm. um, work backwards from customers, not forwards from the technology that you want. Yeah, that's excellent. Do you have, I mean, do you just like in, intuitively discover these things or is there some sort of like, do you read books that really energize your like creative process for kind of doing that sort of research on your markets or like what's kind of the, the methodology there? Yeah, you kind of like have to find the intersection between, you know, the stuff that you know and have experience in, like picture a Venn diagram here, like the stuff, mm. you know, stuff that you're passionate about and stuff that the world actually wants, you know, and you want to find like the intersection of those three things. And that's probably a pretty small intersection for most people. So, you know, that narrows your focus pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, but once you do find that intersection, it's just a matter of diving in as deeply as you can into that topic and learning all you can through, you know, hands-on practice, books, you know, reading online, whatever it takes. And once you feel like you're an expert in the current state of the art, you're ready to teach it. Excellent. Yeah. And I just wanted to uh, touch on that. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but what is your most memorable slash terrifying experience working with Jeff Bezos? Ooh, <laughs> you know, I'll preface that by saying that most of them were very positive experiences. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, obviously he's a very intimidating person to talk to. He wasn't actually the richest person in the world back then when I was working <laughs> with him, uh, but it still felt that way, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you did your homework, like as long as you like knew your, your stuff, you know, you had your numbers in your head ready to go and like you were prepared for the questions you were likely to be answered, things would generally go well with a meeting with Jeff. Okay. Um, one time, <laughs> however, it did not. And uh, that was a scary day. Yeah. So um, this is actually getting back to your earlier point about like making that transition from being an engineer to a businessman, right? Because mm. Jeff is both, right? He expects you to be both as well. So I went into a meeting with him pitching an idea for basically this... Uh, cross-site personalization network thing. And this is before like, you know, ad targeting was really a thing. So really it was like the idea of like highly targeted advertising in its infancy, but mm. I didn't recognize that, right? So I go into this meeting with like this huge idea and then in my like projections for how much money I might make, it was like $10,000 or something like that, right? Uh-huh. He just like, he, he popped his top, you know? He's like, <laughs> why are you even like wasting my time with a proposal this small, right? Yeah. Um, but he pivoted the discussion to, you know, this is actually, there's actually a much bigger idea in here hidden somewhere, right? Hmm. And, and he was right, as he usually is. Um, <laughs> but I didn't feel too good about after that meeting. You know, like I was actually wondering if my security badge was going to still work after that day. Huh. And uh, fortunately it did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things, things worked out all right. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's, uh, so uh, I know in the pre-interview you had mentioned something about uh, thinking big and there was kind of uh, like a, uh, an epiphany moment for you. Um, what have you kind of learned about thinking big or how is it kind of, I mean, it's one thing to say it. Like, I'd like to think like, Oh, I think big, but I mean, there's people that do it and then they do big things. And I'm just kind of curious, like what, what is, uh, what's going on under the hood there? Yeah. I mean that, uh, that moment I just described was kind of the turning point for me, you know, where I realized I wasn't thinking big. Um, and yeah, how do you actually like make a methodology out of thinking big? That's a great question. You know, I think you just have to question your self-limiting beliefs, you know, like if you're, if you're looking at an idea and you're only thinking in terms of like its local impact or what you can do personally, think about, you know, what would happen if you took this idea globally? What would happen if you had a whole team working on it, right? Don't hmm. limit the impact just on based on, on what you think you can do alone. Yeah, hmm. that's a nice uh, thought experiment. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I was curious what are some features of Apache Spark that really catch your attention? Oh, um, you know, it's, uh, 
Apache Spark 3 came out recently. And, uh, you know, I don't want to like upset anyone, but I was a little bit underwhelmed by it, to be honest. You know, like it seems to be following into the same pattern as a lot of other big open source projects where the corporate sponsor is kind of hoarding a lot of the new stuff as commercial features. Mm. And the open source version is kind of not moving forward so quickly. Um, so, you know, an example there is, you know, they were promising a lot of, you know, deep learning integration leading up to Apache Spark 3. And that didn't really happen. You know, like, you know, there's commercial solutions and they produced a bridge to make that happen. But um, it didn't really happen. But at its core, though, Apache Spark is still super exciting. Like, I think it's like really an amazing technology and I'm still excited to teach it because, you know, it's just so hugely scalable and so parallelizable. And MLlib in particular, you know, it's just genius how they've taken some of these algorithms and figured out how to distribute those across an entire cluster and suck those all back together. I mean, these are algorithms that you wouldn't necessarily think would be parallelizable in the first place in some cases, uh, but using Apache Spark, you can throw sophisticated machine learning algorithms at massive data sets and just scale that pretty much infinitely. And how is that not exciting, right? I mean, yeah, that's your, once you hit those limitations of one machine, the parallelization is kind of like your saving grace there. I don't have too much experience with that, but I am curious, like, what is that transition like if you're only used to kind of working on non-parallelization type projects and then you know, like, man, I need to get, I need to step it up yeah. or, yeah. Yeah, it can be a tough transition because, you know, a lot of people do uh, learn, you know, running an IPython notebook on their own local PC or a single host somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. and you will very quickly run into the limitations of a single PC. Uh, even in the courses that I teach, you know, I have a lot of students who have lower end laptops and like, I can't run the exercises in this course. It's not even big data, you know, we're talking like, you know, for example, a movie lens data set with like a million ratings, that's too much for some people. Hmm. Um, the good news is that the algorithms are pretty much the same on the cloud and on your desktop. And in some cases, it's a very easy transition. So for example, if you're using SageMaker on AWS, you know, you're still using an IPython notebook environment to develop within SageMaker. So it's a pretty natural transition, uh, but you are gonna be more limited in the algorithms that you can use that are distributed. So not every algorithm in SageMaker is actually parallelizable. Some of them are restricted to a single very large host, um, bigger than what you could get at home, obviously, but you know, mm. it's kind of a mixed bag there. So. You know, it is a more restrictive environment in some ways to go to cloud computing because there are fewer algorithms available for you to choose from. Uh, but for the ones that do work, you know, obviously the sky's the limit as to uh, how far you can scale them out. Hmm. Wild. And do you, does your uh, course curriculum kind of feature both yeah. uh, pieces of knowledge? Okay. Yeah, we start people off, you know, developing on their own PC because that's easier. You know, you, it, you can... You don't have to think about that too much. It doesn't cost any money. Uh, but usually at the, at the end of the most of my courses, we'll say, okay, here's how you would actually do this in the cloud. If you want to go set up an AWS account, go for it. Just don't send me the bill for it. <laughs> uh, here's what you do. Here's how it works in that setting as well. So yeah, we do cover both. Hmm, excellent. And uh, what is your message to someone that is working 50 hours a week, carrying a pager all night and commuting two hours every day to provide a good living for their family? Oh, that. That hits home. I used to do that. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Um, yeah, I mean, my advice would be to uh, realize that it doesn't have to be that way. So, um, you know, I felt that way myself, you know, when I left uh, my big corporate job, my big cushy corporate job with, you know, a nice salary and all that at Amazon, I was scared out of my pants, you know, hmm. like, is this going to work? You know, I have mouths to feed, I have a mortgage to pay. Um, and it's terrifying, right? Because you're brought up in this uh, society, at least I was, that says, you know, you must go to college, you must get a job working for some big corporation, and you will do that until you retire at 65. And then hopefully you will go, you know, do nothing for the rest of your life. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, it doesn't work that way anymore, right? And you know, the, the world's definitely woken up to the idea that there are alternative lifestyles out there and alternative career paths. So if you find yourself, um, you know, limiting again, limiting your beliefs as to what you can do for a career, um, know that you can actually make more money in some cases, you know, working for yourself than you could for a big corporate overlord. And, you know, arguably, it's no less stable because if you're working for a company, they can let you go whenever they feel like it, right? Right. Um, I, I can't fire myself. I mean, I guess I could, but I wouldn't, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, in some ways it's more stable and uh, there's this unlimited upside as well. So especially when you're selling, you know, products uh, that can just scale forever, um, there's no limit to what you can do, right? The upside is just infinite. So you, you can't do that on a fixed salary. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Um, I'm, I am curious about how you reconciled with that fear because I, I just reflect on my own situation and it's a real fear and I'm, I can only imagine other people have that. So was it just, uh, you just analyze the risk and you're like, ah, I've got two years of runway with my right. savings or like, how did you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important to do it responsibly if you can. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people are kind of thrust into this situation suddenly. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. a lot of that's probably happening right now. Um, but, you know, if you are in a situation to plan this out a little bit, uh, you definitely don't want to quit your day job until you have at least several months of savings in the bank. You know, uh, make sure that you're ready for, you know, things to not go well and you have a plan to go back, you know, to the quote unquote real world if you need to. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you do it responsibly, it's less stressful because, you know, you, you at least have a plan B, right? You know, you know I, I know I can live for this long. I know I can like apply for a job if I need to. Uh, things are a little bit more sane in that world. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, you know, it is a scary period of like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks when you first, you know, strike out on your own. You know, I mean, I tried several different products, several different ideas. Half of them took off, half of them didn't. Right. But um, yeah. You just have to keep trying until you find something that works for you. And, you know, when you do double down on it. Hmm. Yeah, I know uh, with your uh, courses, you're kind of like you have enough work cut out for you just to keep those things up to date with yeah. how, how everything changes. Would you ever consider kind of doing a course on what we are just talking about there? I feel like there, a lot of people would be receptive to borrowing your brain for that. Oh, you mean just like, you know, striking out on self-employment, things like that? <laughs> well, you know, just like creating their own, you know, becoming their own boss, get, yeah, yeah. generating the innovative ideas that people actually pay you money for, that sort of thing. Yeah, I actually wrote a book about that um, a few years ago. Um, so if you go to Amazon and search for Frank Kane, you'll find a bunch of technical books. And you'll also find a book that's called Self-Employment, um, you know, Building an Internet Business of One, I think it's called. So uh, it's like 99 cents on Kindle or something. So if you want a complete brain dump of, you know, how I did it and the lessons that you can learn from that, um, go there. <laughs> okay. And that's timeless, I guess. So you don't have to worry about, uh, is that, is that knowledge, uh, timeless arguably? I think so. Um, you know, I did reread it not too long ago and it, it still holds up, you know? Um, awesome. so yeah, there's no like super specific things in there and you know, the, the situation hasn't changed that much in the past, you know, eight years or whatever it's been. Excellent. Well, some of these next questions then may be like content that you could go locate in that book. So uh, feel free to kind of drive the conversation if some of these aren't uh, something that you want to answer. But uh, first thing uh, regarding courses and, and uh, that sort of uh, making income from that sort of a lifestyle, uh, what does the research process look like when you're locating under service niches for potential courses? Yeah. So there's a lot of data out there, it turns out. Um, <laughs> so obviously it's going to be data driven because I'm a data scientist, right? Fair enough. Um, 
So there are tools out there, you know, obviously Google Trends, things like that can help you identify, you know, what is an emerging topic. Um, but some platforms out there actually give you really detailed information on this. So um, I don't want to talk about Udemy too much because it was actually Manning that connected us. But yeah. Udemy is another online learning platform. And for instructors, they have a very useful uh, tool for actually investigating these topics. So you can actually type in any topic you want to as an instructor there. And it will tell you exactly how many people are searching for that topic, how many courses already exist in that topic, how good the courses are that already exist in that topic. So if you find a topic that has a lot of demand and not a lot of supply, you know, you can actually figure that out pretty quantitatively using the tools they give you. So that's how you go about it. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen uh, the Google Trends thing I got curious about. And it, it's like they make it really hard to tap into that API. Yeah. Like you have to do some hacky things like to scrape the website, <laughs> like, like they don't make it easy to get, uh, to play with that data. Yeah, it's definitely less useful than, you know, going at, at an actual platform where people are going to be coming to actually buy your stuff potentially, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely that data that's coming from the e-learning platforms is a hundred times more valuable than Google Trends for this purpose. Yeah, fair enough. And um, do any niches come to mind that you feel are underserved uh, today? or that are kind of like trending towards? Ooh, good question. Um, it's hard to say. There's not a whole lot of the like really big new technology emerging right now. You know, a lot of stuff is kind of like maturing right now, it seems, and sort of uh, leveling off a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are certain topics that I think are, you know, becoming more popular. Um, certainly AWS certification continues to grow in popularity. Um, right now I'm like actually investing a lot of time in my Elasticsearch course. Okay. Uh, because that seems to be doing pretty well right now as well. So we're doubling down on that, adding more content. And that's a, a field where it is changing very quickly and there's a lot of new uh, content to add. Mm -hmm. um, Excellent. Yeah. Beyond, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, was there uh, more you wanted to add there? I... No, I was just kind of like thinking in the back of my head there. Um, you know, I'm just like thinking more broadly about, you know, where is the innovation happening today? Mm. Um, a lot of it is in cloud computing, I think. Um, okay. You, know, you see people like AWS just adding new features like every single week and, and especially in the field of machine learning. So hmm. that's obviously a very exciting time. Like it's not really so much about what courses are, are, are trending in emerging topics. It's more about what's growing and uh, what's expanding and where is the new research going. So a good example is this new AWS data analytics exam that just came out. You know, um, If I can be the first guy to offer a prep class for that, then... I'm golden, right? So you just yeah. have to kind of keep your eyes open and see what new things are hitting the market and uh, try to be the first one to teach about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're, the book that you're working, that you're uh, published with Manning, Machine Learning, Data Science, and Deep Learning with Python, is that, uh, would you say that's like kind of classical stuff or do you talk about anything in that quantum? Because I know quantum is kind of emerging, uh, mm -hmm. but I talk about it like I like I know very much about it, but I'm I'm just more or less curious. Yeah, I try to keep it you know more practical in those courses, so okay. I do keep it up to date. So um, you know we are updating that course all the time. We just added like three hours of content to it in, in the past month, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but you know I'm trying to keep it practical. So you know we're focusing on tools that actually people are actually using to solve real world problems today. So you know it doesn't really focus on the more emerging researchy kind of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I do have another course that they offer there um, about recommender systems where it does go a little bit more forward thinking, but uh, that's just because that's, that's my passion project. You know, that's something I know a lot about. So there's hmm. a little bit more depth on that one. Excellent. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to uh, help promote that and 
and uh, dig into it myself. I'm, I work in oil and gas. I don't know if I shared that with you. So we have yeah. oodles of data there. And, uh, but there's just a lot of challenges, even getting it to the point where you can do data science on it. And that's kind of like where I'm yeah. just working right now. Data engineering, I guess, is. Yeah, uh, the feature engineering and data engineering is like really more than half the battle. You know, you just need to make sure that you have good data to start with before you can actually expect good models to be trained on that data, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's definitely a mistake to like make a course that focuses purely on the algorithms and not on the feature engineering and data engineering and preparing your data and cleaning your data part of it because it's so important or else you can make completely wrong decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just to tie it into current events, you know, people are like really doing some sketchy stuff with coronavirus data these days, you know, because <laughs> they're ignoring selection bias and things like that, you know, and, and drawing some uh, questionable conclusions in some cases. So um, I think this is making a data scientist out of a lot of us, but it's a, a definitely a lesson in data quality and how important that is. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There actually, I was going to dig into that. I might open up that can of worms here uh, in a little bit because it seems like data list literacy is um, it's like, we're, we're kind of being forced into this. Uh, yeah. Maybe it wasn't a path we were all wanting to go on. <laughs> Definitely not in this context. Um, yeah. But yeah, we're, we're all becoming data scientists lately. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was curious, uh, what are some ideas for people on where to uh, publish their courses so they can leverage audience that are not their own? And if you don't want to answer these, uh, you know, I got plenty of questions. <laughs> no, we can go there. Okay. Um, oh, hang on, hang on. My Instacart shopper needs something, so pardon me for a minute. Sure. All right, we're all good. Uh, all right, yeah, so <clears throat> we should probably re- repeat that question so we get a good take of it. Sure. So, uh, what are some ideas for people on where to publish their courses? so they can leverage audiences that are not their own. Yeah, there's plenty of places. So, um, well, if you want to like self-publish and like, you know, completely just do that completely from your end without, you know, being curated and invited into a platform, the choices right now are kind of limited. Um, One is Udemy, you know, that's the big 800 pound gorilla of this world. And Mm -hmm. Udemy has a totally open platform where anybody can publish a course and it goes in front of their marketplace of millions of students. Uh, So that's kind of the obvious place to start, right? Um, another one is Skillshare. They also allow anybody to publish a course there. They have more stringent rules than Udemy does, but uh, you can still, you know, as, as a fledgling instructor, you know, put your wares out there and, you know, hang out your shin- shingle on the street and see who comes. Um, but then you have, you know, once you actually establish a name for yourself on these platforms, these other ones like Manning and, uh, and other ones will find you. And, you know, these are these more curated platforms where there's a more select group of instructors on them. And, uh, you know, those, you know, tend to be more interesting in the longer run. But, um, you know, for getting started, it's going to be Udemy. It's going to be Skillshare. Maybe publishing on your own site. But again, if you don't have an existing audience, don't waste your time doing that. You know, you want to leverage these existing big marketplaces instead. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it was an interesting concept when I, when I read that. Um, I know there's a little bit of, like, the way that they compensate the instructors on some of those courses can be, like, borderline... I mean, dare I say like predatory or, or is it yeah. just part of the game and you just, you use it for what it's good for and, and it's just the nature of the beast or what do you, what do you think about that? 
Well, you know, I don't feel predated upon, um, but it is true okay. that these places definitely sell at very low cost. So there is kind of a race to the bottom going on in some markets. Um, you know, typically in the United States, you know, you'll see an online course selling on these platforms for like $12 or so. And of that, you know, unless you drove that sale yourself directly, you'll get at best half of that money for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other, other, yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, we have places like India and Brazil and Turkey, where they're actually selling courses for like $5. And it, worst case scenario, someone buys a course there. Um, there's like an iTunes store fee on top of that. And then, you know, the platform takes its half. By the time you're done, you have a dollar, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, and for that dollar, you have a student who expects Q&A support and, you know, all this other stuff too. Mm. Um, but you have to make up for it in volume. So it's really a low price, high volume game, right? So, okay. you know, even if you're selling courses for, you know, a dollar a piece and the real number averages out more to like $5 a piece. Um, if you have 300,000 students or 500,000 students, it adds up, you know? Yeah. So it's a mindset thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. I figured, I figured I'd just, uh, bring it up. So thanks for answering that. And, um, what is your biggest learning from constantly battling the demand for keeping your existing courses up to date? Oh gosh, it's been huge lately. So, um, the past several months, all I've done is keep my courses up to date. And, um, I think that's okay at this point, you know, like I have a, a broad offering of courses that offer broad topics. So, you know, I got my machine learning data science course. I got my cloud computing courses. I got my big data courses. Um, so, you know, there are some specific technologies like Spark and Elasticsearch that I cover, but you know, I'm really focused on just, you know, keeping those courses competitive and up to date and the best they can be. You're right. So mm-hmm. part of the thinking behind that is um, it's a lot harder to break in as a new instructor today than it was three years ago. So Again, I was kind of in the right place at the right time because there wasn't a whole lot of competition, and yeah. a lot, not a whole lot of uh, instructors out there at the time. But word got out that, you know, you can make money selling online courses. And now there's, you know, thousands and thousands of instructors out there competing with me. So hmm. uh, it's not as easy as it was to, you know, have a new course and have that be successful as it used to be, even for me. So hmm. uh, for me, the strategy is more about defending the, um, the top sellers that I have and keeping them there. Yeah. And it's, so it's like a, like a quality over quantity thing at, the, at this point, or is that not really a correct? Uh, no, that's absolutely correct. Okay. Um, you know, the, the courses that sell the best are going to be the, mo- the most comprehensive ones. So, mm-hmm. you know, if a student has a choice between spending $10 on a 10 hour course or a two hour course, they're going to pick the 10 hour course. Right. So the more comprehensive I can make these courses, the better. And there's always going to be people trying to catch up to me in, in that comprehensiveness. So, yeah. You know, while I'm adding, you know, my next two hours of courses to content to make my 10 hour course, 12 hours, someone else made their eight hour course, 10 hours. So it's kind of this arms race that keeps going on forever. You know? <laughs> Gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's uh, it's interesting to think about. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, okay. So why do you think students need a personal connection when it comes to these uh, MOOCs or these big learning platforms? Ooh, do they need it? Probably not. They definitely want it, right? Okay. Um, you know, I think, you know, a, a well-established platform that has a large student community can largely support each other. Um, but, you know, definitely people will have questions. People struggle. You know, they're going to want some one-on-one attention for the questions that they have, and that's okay. We provide that on, on the various platforms that we publish on. Um, part of it's that just, you know, giving people confidence, you know, so that they know that if they're you know, watching this content, this material, they find it challenging, they get stuck, they know there's someone they can turn to to keep going. 
And I think that's important just for like getting people to get through the course at all and like getting better engagement with the course. So mm. uh, that's definitely a thing. Um, there are some students who take it to an extreme though. You know, some people expect me to be their, you know, personal mentor for life and, uh, you know, do their homework for them and stuff like that. And yeah. obviously I draw the line there, but, um, you know, there's definitely a demand from students to get more and more one-on-one interaction from the instructors and not less. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely curious because just looking at the pure numbers, it, it's, it prevents you from scaling yes. like you want, but I mean, you're not going to be able to, if you can't give them the service they want, there's, you know, what's, what's the point type thing. So I was just wondering, like, could they do something where it's like, okay, for 10 bucks, you get the course, but for 25, you get dedicated or something like what's, what is like a potential solution here, I guess is my. Oh, there's many solutions and it kind of depends on the instructor, how they want to go about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So the way I've solved the problem is that I have a teaching assistant that I've hired that helps me answer questions online. So this guy knows probably more than I do about some of these topics. So hmm. um, that allows me to scale beyond myself for just, you know, answering student questions. And yeah. because I've like marketed my courses under the brand of Sundog Education and not necessarily as Frank Kane, um, students are okay with that. You know, they're like, okay, this is a guy from Sundog Education. He's here to help. So yeah. if I had to, I could add more teaching assistants and scale that pretty much infinitely. So that's one strategy. Um, the other strategy is just what you said. You know, you have these sort of like tiers of service where, you know, for 10 bucks, you get the videos, but you know, if you want to spend a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever, you'll get, you know, office hours or with a webinar once a week with the instructor, um, stuff like that. Right. And a lot of instructors are doing that or basically trying to like, you know, convert these, um, video courses as kind of a lead funnel into these more personalized services that they charge a premium for. Mm -hmm. Um, That works for some people. I mean, for me, it wouldn't work because anything where I'm like trying to scale my personal time is not going to scale to half a million people. So it's just, (laughs) it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, But for instructors that are starting, that can be a viable model. Yeah. And I guess because scale keeps popping up here and I like, I continue to think like, there's no way I can fathom having that many people on a platform that are, you know, trying to get a piece of me type thing. And so I'm just wondering, uh, like, did you always care about scale or what at a certain point did you say like, okay, we need to, we need to start thinking bigger here, I guess. Or, cause it seems like it could kind of hurt your ability to innovate if you're like, Oh, we need to, we need to scale. And it's like, dude, you don't even have a client yet. So what's, what's the, how do you deal with that? I guess. You know, I think there's a couple of thoughts packed into that question. You know, one is how important is growth to begin with, right? Um, Mm. So um, you have to like think about what your goals are in a business and that goes for an online teaching business as well. So I could, you know, add an army of instructors and an army of teaching assistants and, you know, create a hundred courses a year or whatever. Um, But I don't want to, right? Like I like the lifestyle I have where I'm just working from home. I work on my own schedule. You know, I'm not managing a bunch of people. And I make enough money to live comfortably. So I'm cool with that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm preserving my lifestyle at this point as opposed to driving growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at, at some point you have to ask yourself, is growth worth it? You know, it, is, it's not always, the answer is not always obvious. <laughs> um, mm. But your original question, you know, as to when, when did I realize I had to do that and how do I deal with it? I mean, it's just survival, you know, like um, I never expected it to take off this much. Yeah. And when I find myself, you know, spending like four hours a day just answering questions, I'm like, this isn't sustainable. You know, I can't do anything else. Uh, this, is, this is crazy. Hmm. Uh, so I had to find help. I had to find a teaching assistant to help out with that at that point, um, just out of necessity. 
yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so as far as you had mentioned that sometimes you'll bring uh, outside knowledge in, uh, to help you with, with some of the scale problems. And I was wondering, what do you look for in those sorts of partnerships when you bring in that outside knowledge? Yeah, there's been some lessons learned there actually. So, um, definitely you want to like deal with people that, you know, and trust, you know, there's a Mm. lot of people out there who are just kind of like trying to scam you and Mm. filtering those out is step one because there's, there's no shortage of them. Um, but even within, you know, people that you have met personally, like at a conference or something, some of them are better than others, right? You know, just because you get along with someone that, you know, over cocktails at a conference doesn't mean they're going to be a good partner to work with. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you need to look deeper than that. You need to see, look at, you know, what has this person actually done? What are their own accomplishments? What's their own pedigree? What have they, what have they shown that they can do, right? Yeah. And, uh, and base your partnerships based on that. A uh, good example, you know, right now I'm uh, partnering with a guy called uh, Stefan Marek on some courses. And he himself is a very successful online instructor in the field of uh, cloud computing. So, you know, we got together saying, you know, you're a big name in machine learning. I'm a big name in cloud computing. Let's do some cloud computing machine learning courses together. Yeah. And, you know, since I knew he was established, he knew what he was doing. He was already successful in the space. You know, that was a partnership that made sense, for example. Right. Mm, yeah. Excellent. And I guess before we leave this whole topic, because uh, he, he had brought in some, something up where it was uh, like three years ago, it was way easier. But now it's like everybody and their grandpa is probably like trying to set up shop. So um, how how does one even like if they've got some intellectual property that they want to bring to the marketplace? what is their, like, what sort of expectations should they set for themselves? And maybe like the first couple things would they, you know, would they prioritize if they were serious about this? Well, definitely pay attention to topic selection. Um, you know, you want to go into this with a good choice of topic where again, you're trying to find something that's, you know, high demand and low supply of existing good courses. If you don't do that, you're not going to be successful in today's marketplace. Yeah. Um, so you have to go into it with the expectation that like most things today, 10% of the people doing it are going to be successful. The other 90% are not, you know, it's a risk. Um, yeah. So, you know, don't bet the farm on it. You know, if you can spare a few hours a week of your spare time to make a course and see what happens and you have nothing to lose except your time. Great. Go for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when I see people that are like quitting their day jobs and like, you know, don't have any savings saying I'm going to be an online instructor now and I'm going to get rich. Um, <laughs> that doesn't end well, you know, yeah. or at least 90% of the time it doesn't end well. So yeah. be responsible, you know? Wow. Yeah. That, uh, thanks. Thanks for all your insight there. I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of people that are, are totally going to enjoy that. So I wanted to switch gears and talk about some AI stuff. And I was wondering if we could kick this off by, um, if you had to sum it up, what, what have we learned from peak hype with AI mm. boundaries, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's been a good story in that. Um, you know, I mean, I think the media is finally catching on that, you know, we're probably not going to be taken over by our robot overlords anytime soon, um, which is good. I, you know, there's been a lot of unrealistic expectations there. Hmm. Um, personally, for me, you know, self-driving cars is kind of what's hit home on that the most. Um, I'm the owner yeah. of a Tesla and I bought one three years ago with a full self-driving package and I'm still waiting, you know. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in, in the whole, it's a good thing. You know, if people recognize, you know, that AI is really best uh, used on narrowly constrained problems, um, it's not going to be doing creative thinking for you. It's not going to be solving the problems of the world. There are still things that humans are going to be better at for a long time now. Um, you know, I think that lets us better, you know, make investments in this technology. And instead of trying to solve every problem with the AI hammer, 
um, you know, look at more appropriate tools. I mean, even within the field of machine learning, you know, we're seeing XGBoost kick the butt of deep learning networks in a lot of cases, right? So um, neural nets are not the answer to everything by any means. Hmm. Wow. So for an entrepreneur looking to build SaaS products on AI uh, or leveraging uh, uh, that sort of technology, what are the boundaries that, that we need to operate in? Ooh, SaaS with AI. So uh, give me an example, like make that concrete for me. So I know, I know there's stuff uh, recommendation system wise. There's, right, uh, right. there's also like time series forecasting, right. that sort of thing. So it's okay. just, yeah. Um, hopefully do, do I need to? No, I know what maybe, you mean, but okay. I'm trying to wrap my head around the question. Like, you know, um, so, so what about them? <laughs> Yeah, like what what uh, what boundaries do they uh, need to operate in? I guess so. Any insight mm -hmm. on like if you're wanting to be innovative with this technology, is there um, is there some places to kind of stay away from or uh, yeah? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, obviously AWS has been putting out a plethora of these services lately that have very specialized functions like image recognition or forecasting or fraud detection or what have you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to assume that they have some very smart people developing those services and they're probably going to do what they say they do for the most part. Uh, but, you know, touching on your earlier point of like peak hype, you know, you have to have realistic expectations. You know, you can't really go into this expecting a magic black box that will do everything for you. Um, so I, I guess, you know, the best answer is to look for systems that are extensible in some ways, right, where you can actually inject your own training data or build upon what they're giving you as a service to meet your own specialized needs. A good example, actually, is AWS's recognition service. So that's their image, image recognition service, right? So they have this, like, library of pre-trained things that they can recognize in images. Like, you know, if I fed in this image of you, it would say, here's a guy who looks like he's so many years old, he's wearing glasses, and he has a microphone in front of him, right? Hmm. Uh, but it probably wouldn't recognize that, you know, there's a specific sports banner in the back of your, your wall there and what that actually represents. Uh, that's a great example because they recently launched a new service for that service where you can actually train your own image data with it. And people like the NFL, I think it is, is actually using that to train, uh, you know, sports team logos and, you know, things that people have in the stands, like the big, you know, number one finger things, right? <laughs> um, these are not things that the, the service itself knew about out of the box, but they were able to train that service with their own specialized data to have it meet their specialized needs. So hmm. uh, extensibility and uh, being able to train in your own data, I think is important. Excellent. And I guess maybe another way to kind of uh, uh, approach that question is because your expertise is teaching this machine learning technology, for example, or one of, one of these expertise, but productizing that and, and bringing it to the market. So I was curious, um, are there any trends that you see in the uh, innovation that's occurring that's, that's actually making it to the market and people are actually paying for um, innovation in e-learning specifically? Uh, well, with the, uh, with, so when they go to the e-learning, they get the machine learning education. And then once people are skilled up with that, what are they able to kind of right. bring to the market? Is it, is it all like self-driving cars or is there any trends that you're seeing with what people are actually bringing to the market? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, to be honest, I usually lose touch with my students before they actually do something like that, right? So um, I guess the exception is like, you know, some of the people that are consuming my courses in a business setting. So there's a lot of people who have like a corporate account with these various, mm. excuse me, uh, platforms, and they're trying to solve a very specific problem. Um, 
it's a really wide range that I see. There's no real trend I can speak to. People are applying this stuff to all sorts of different problems. Um, I guess the most recent example was I was talking to a student who was trying to uh, recommend um, TV shows to people for like a big satellite TV provider, right? Um, mm. So usually it's consumer-oriented stuff like that that I see people asking about, um, you know, but I'm sure there's a lot of like really interesting things that are bigger that they just can't talk about with me. You know, there's a, a lot of secrecy in corporate world. So yeah, you know, I, there's a lot I probably just don't know about. Fair enough. Yep. Alrighty. And uh, what are some reasons that come to mind for why we are not more data savvy uh, in the U S I guess? Hmm. Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> That's like societal and cultural, right? I mean, I almost said global, but uh, <laughs> well, approach some, it how, how you will, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And, you know, I mean, obviously, we're still in a world where math scares a lot of people, um, yeah. you know, and we are getting to a point where AI and ML and data science are becoming easier and easier to use. So, you know, my hope is that it will become more and more accessible to a wider audience. That's kind of my goal in my teaching, too. You know, like I don't approach these topics with like really arcane math and lots of Greek letters and all of that stuff. You know, I'm just like, Here's how the algorithm works at an conceptual level. Here's how to use it, how to interpret the results. Uh, here's how to do something with it, right? So yeah. uh, the more people I can reach with that message, I think the more people will become data literate, as it were. Yeah. Um, so, you know, online education can be a piece of making that better, you know, hopefully. Um, today, you know, people, you know, a lot of people still are scared of numbers. A lot of people distrust technology in general. Um, I get that. But, um, hmm. you know, data is important. And, uh especially these days. Yeah. Uh, and you might've answered this uh, previously, but I was just curious, why did you choose to make your uh, education business a lifestyle business instead of a growth business? Uh, well, part of it was because, you know, I spent uh, about 10 years in corporate America managing people and I kind of wanted a break quite honestly, you know, um, yeah. personally, I'm an introvert, you know, um, I don't get energized by, you know, being in big meetings and managing lots of people. I can do it. I can be good at it. Uh, but that's not what I find personally rewarding. You know, like I just want to, at the end of the day, hunker down, be focused and create cool stuff and put it out there and like help people improve their lives with it. Right. So yeah. that's my goal. You know, it's not to like make a million dollars or make $10 million or whatever, or, you know, sell my company for a bajillion dollars. Um, I just want to be able to keep doing what I'm doing and, you know, pay the bills along the way. And I'm mm. cool with that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I guess to, to each their own, it, it's like, it's really helpful to know just yourself, I guess. And, uh, it sounds like you, uh, you know where you perform best and that's, that's all that matters. So. Yeah. You know, like work with your own inner nature and, uh, you know, yeah. if you can like make that happy, then you'll be happy. Right. Yeah. So heck don't, yeah. don't try to be something you're not. Yeah, absolutely. That's a powerful message. Um, what are uh, your top three tips for, Python programmers to monetize their skills with machine learning. Ooh, um, yeah, I kind of touched on this earlier. Like the main thing, number one is to just get as much practice as you can, you know, so it's not enough to learn this stuff. Well, let's break it down into, into three tips. You know, one is to learn it, you know, obviously get as much practice as you can learn all you can do as many hands-on activities as you can. Yeah. And if you really want to monetize it, obviously the money these days seems to be in data science, machine learning AI. So, you know, learn about Jupyter Notebooks and scikit-learn and, you know, all that good stuff. Um, that's step one. Step two is to apply that knowledge, right? So however you can, uh, do Kaggle challenges online, uh, find freelance gigs, 
Um, if you have a friend, you know, do some gig for them just so you can put something on your resume that says, I built this thing and it actually had an impact on somebody, right? Mm -hmm. um, and three, you know, depending on where you are in the marketplace you're in, you might want to consider a certification. Um, again, it depends on the employees you're looking at. So I guess tip number three would be to work backwards from the employees you want to work for. Go look at their job descriptions online, see what they require, what skills they're looking for. If it doesn't say, I want a certification, don't bother getting one, you know, focus on the things they say they want, listen to them. They probably wrote that for a reason, right? So, <laughs> uh, don't guess at what your employers want, go out and find out what they want, right? Yeah. Um, and that gets into like a much bigger topic of like, you know, how to get a job where, you know, networking is important and like who you know is important, but um, mm -hmm. that's probably a different question. <laughs> yeah. They, would you, would you say that it's uh it's kind of that scenario where like if you learn these skills and you wanted to go out on your own, is that a little not realistic? Like if somebody's having a hard time setting expectations um, like yeah. what is kind of the progression, I guess that, that you see? I mean, I think it makes a lot more sense to, you know, get a, get your foot in the door in some company and like, let them teach you how to be successful in that setting instead mm -hmm. of just striking entirely out on your own from the get go. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I've been successful in self-employment, but a lot of that's because I'm building on what I learned working for somebody else. Right. Yeah. Um, and the same thing holds true of Python development. Um, you know, even if you can't find a job, you know, doing machine learning in Python, find some entry level, level job at a company that does have those opportunities, you know, prove yourself in that entry-level job and work your way over. It's a lot easier to transfer internally into that job than to apply from it externally with no experience. So, um, you know, I think that's a really great strategy. You know, don't try to go straight for uh, the job you want as somebody with no experience from the outside. Work your way into the companies that do have the opportunities that you want and mm -hmm. sort of sneak into them from the side, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the strategy. Um, Alrighty. So what is your biggest piece of advice for someone that wants to transition away from trading time for money? Ooh. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the first step is to make sure you have enough of a buffer to get away with it. Right. So, um, yeah. it's not a binary choice for a lot of people. Like you're probably going to have to trade time for money for a while in order to have enough money in the bank to be able to make experiments with not trading time for money. So, mm. Step one is to trade your time for money before you can stop trading time for money. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, beyond that, though, it's just a matter of experimentation. So, um, like I said, you got to throw spaghetti at the wall. You know, the, the general concept is to build products and not services. So, you want to be selling things that can sell themselves while you sleep. So, some mm. sort of online product where you can throw it out there on the internet. And people will just keep buying it, you know, hopefully forever. Like, that's not realistic. You have to keep these things up to date. Yeah. Um, but you want to like figure out digital products that you can sell online, you know, continuously without your direct involvement. And some of those will work. Many of them will not. Um, the problem with online products is that there's unlimited supply, right? So, you know, they are susceptible to these races to the bottom where, you know, it's hard to actually make money off of them. Uh, so you just have to like try a bunch of just different stuff, see what sticks. You know, I tried selling software I wrote online. I tried selling online courses. Some of them took off, some of them didn't. Uh, but the ones that did, you know, worked out. And find the ones that do, double down on it. Don't get too hung up on the ones that don't work out. Let it go, you know. <laughs> Ooh, that's uh, tricky. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. when you're in love with your ideas, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is an art to it, you know. I mean, it's, it's easy to give up too quickly on, on an idea, right? You know, yeah. maybe you just didn't get it in front of the right people. Maybe it wasn't quite the right product. Maybe with a little bit more tweaking or a little bit uh, different positioning, it would have been successful. 
Um, so it's not always a clear decision as to when to let something go for sure. Yeah. Getting back to your whole experimentation thing though, it's like, that's how you develop. That's probably the only way to develop that intuition. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely like, you know, learn from experience after a while, like when it's time to give up, you know, Mm -hmm. um, a good example, um, I've been trying forever to like, you know, throw online ad money at my courses online and I've never gotten a good return on those. Right. So at some point you're like thinking of Einstein's quote of, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result. Uh, so, you know, by the time I tried my third experiment of trying to get online ads to pay off and it didn't, I'm like, ah, okay, I give up, you know, this, I should do yeah. something else with my time. Right. So, hmm. uh, keep Einstein in the back of your head. As <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's excellent. Um, awesome. So, Let's see here. So when building momentum on multiple streams of income, what insight do you have on getting the first couple working while you sleep? Ooh, uh, you know, the biggest challenge is, is just getting it out the door, right? You know, like you have to constantly remind yourself that um, what you're working on has no value until it's actually in the marketplace. Zero, zip, not, nothing, right? And that's yeah. a very different mentality than when you're working for a company, right? Because you're getting a paycheck every week whether or not you delivered something yet. Right. Mm. So um, it's hard to like, you know, maintain that discipline when you're striking out on your own and trying to build digital products in a, a passive stream of income. Uh, so a lot of it's just, you know, self-discipline, you know, making sure that you are making steady progress every single day toward a goal. And you know that this thing has no value until it's actually in front of people that can give you money for it. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's probably the hardest part of it all. Really. Um, it's not really so much strategy about how do I market it? Um, you know, how do I sell it? Things like that. It's just, doing it, you know, just get it out there. If you can do that, you're ahead of like 90% of the other people, right? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, what is your biggest takeaway on building software that people actually pay for? Ooh. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously you have to like, look at what your free competition is, right? So, um, in the world of software or courses or anything, people can go to YouTube and get information for free. You know, they can go to open source products and, you know, get some software for free. So, you know, you have to make sure you're doing something more than what people can get for free. And, you know, you're basically, you have to make sure that what you're offering is solving a problem so pressing in someone's mind that they're willing to shell out money for it. And that's Mm. a pretty high bar these days, right? Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I mean, getting back to like, you know, machine learning courses and data science courses, people know they can make some pretty big bucks if they can master this stuff and get a job in that, in that field. Right. So Mm -hmm. for them spending 10 bucks to get a comprehensive course is a no brainer, you know, and these are like, you know, 10, 12, 15 hour courses that are going to give you a lot more depth than you're going to get from a 10 minute video on YouTube. Right. So the value proposition there is clear, right? So make sure that the digital projects that you're developing have such a clear value proposition compared to the free content that's out there that you're competing with, that it's a no brainer, right? Hmm. You got to make sure of that. Excellent. And, uh, what, so I was curious about your goal setting routine. You had mentioned, uh, some remarks in the pre-interview form. And I was just wondering, what does that routine look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, so like I mentioned, like just getting stuff done is like the main problem that you have to solve as a self-employed individual. Mm. And you have to have some discipline to do that, right? So, you know, it would be very tempting for me to sit around and try to consume every movie ever made on Netflix. Um, Actually, I'd probably go nuts if I did that. Uh, But you have to like start every day saying, what am I going to accomplish today? What's my plan? You know, do I want to, you know, create another section in this course that I'm developing? Do I want to, you know, record a podcast with some cool dude, you know, whatever (laughs) it is. Yeah. Um, And and make sure you follow through on that. 
And the interesting part of that mentality is that when you have a goal-driven approach to a day, it doesn't really matter when that goal happens, right? Like after I've achieved what I set out to achieve for today, I'm going to go get a beer, you know, and that might be at two o'clock in the afternoon or it might be at 10 o'clock at night. Um, so it's kind of a good incentive, you know, like I know yeah. once I get this done, I'm going to give myself a beer or whatever, whatever motivates you. Right. Yeah. Um, but it does ensure that I get something done every day that is actually working toward getting a product out the door that people might pay for. Yeah. And then just the, uh, the intuition on like how to prioritize things, I guess that just happens over time or, um, like how do you sift through the like unlimited options for where to deploy your time? Well, you know, you got to like focus on things that are going to generate products that people will pay for. Right. So, Mm. um, you know, I could waste a ton of time, you know, just doing, uh, research for courses that I'm never going to put out or, um, you know, building online ads that are never going to have a return on my investment. Uh, but the real money is going to be in updating my courses, creating new content, you know, getting more content out there for people to consume and ultimately pay for. So, Hmm. you know, you have to prioritize it based on the expected return of that time. Yeah. And I guess the, the caveat with, or correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like the caveat with what you're talking about is that you actually know your customer. And so like maybe what's going on behind the scenes here is like how, how much time did you have to spend it to gather that information? Uh, or do you have any insight for somebody that's just kind of starting out? Like I want to serve, but I don't know who, or I don't know at what depth they, they need me type thing. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I kind of stumbled into it because, you know, I happen to be an expert in te- uh, topics that people really wanted to learn about. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that wasn't really too big of a challenge. Uh, but, you know, the whole uh, field of lean software development has a whole methodology around this of like interviewing your customers, understanding what keeps them awake at night, you know, trying to like solve those problems that are really pressing for them and, you know, developing products that solve those problems. So um, this is a, a do as I say, not as I do kind of a thing. But, you know, you definitely want to like get out there, talk to some potential customers, find out what they want, what problems they're facing, and then figure out how can you solve those problems. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So uh, just to kind of round this off here towards the end, I was curious, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, the best piece of advice I ever received. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier and that's uh, work backward from the customer, you know? So um, the one thing that I think changed my methodology was uh, letting go from the concept as, as, as an engineer that, building cool stuff in and of itself is valuable. It is not. It's building things that people actually want to consume and solve problems that people have that is important. So work backwards from what the customers want, not forwards from what your personal interests are. Awesome. Man, that is so powerful. And uh, what is the most important uh, book or books that we should be reading in 2020? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, as far as technology goes, it's hard to recommend a book because it all changes so quickly now, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I'm not sure I'd recommend a, a paper book per se, but, um, you know, these online books that are emerging, like on Manning uh, Live Video, which, which connected us here, are good yeah. way to go. Um, I don't know, like, you know, personally, I've been reading a lot of science uh, books lately just to kind of like, you know, broaden my horizons, you know, think more scientifically about things. Uh, that's never a bad idea. Uh, right now I'm reading Cosmos Possible Worlds by uh, Andrian. Uh, I got uh, a book by Brian Green on the bookshelf right now as well. Um, not really related to Python or data science because I think there's better ways to learn that. But um, yeah, you definitely want to keep reading, you know, keep your uh, your mind expanding and learning what the rest of humanity is up to. 
Mm -hmm. How much time would you say you spend? Like, is it a, is it like a daily routine or do you kind of binge on the weekends or whenever, whenever you get a moment, how does that work? Uh, for reading? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's opportunistic, you know, um, more on the weekends, obviously, because I have more free time, but you know, I do try to get a few pages in every night at least. Yeah. And if you don't mind me prying a little bit, like how do you make sure that you're actually getting like the, like it's one thing, like you could read a book a day just if you're just crazy like that, but you know, are you actually doing something with the information? Are you documenting it somehow? Like what is, what is your process or is it strictly more for like pleasure and just expanding your mind, I guess? Well, I mean, there's two categories there. You know, when I'm researching a new course, of course, you know, I will buy books that are relevant to that topic and consume them end to end and read them as quickly as I possibly can. So, you know, when I'm making a new course on a new topic, the first thing I do is spend a whole month just reading everything I can possibly read about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I won't necessarily take detailed notes, but, you know, I'll scratch a few things down that I think are important. You know, the the bigger thing is just to, to gel my brain around this topic and like learn the bigger picture, right? Yeah. So, you know, if I could swing my webcam around here, you'd see a giant bookshelf full of O'Reilly books, for example. And, you know, that's, that's where those came from, you know, that, that process. Yeah. Uh, but for things where I'm just trying to like, you know, stay abreast of, you know, current developments in science, no, that's more for pleasure. You know, I'll just uh, read a few pages a night and, uh, and be happy about it, you know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm always, I, it's like a little obsession of mine. It's like, how do, you know, if we're spending this precious time reading and, and just improving our brain, like how, how do you optimize that? And so I'm always seeking for like tools and methodologies. Uh, what, you know, what different people are doing different brains, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could probably do better with that for sure. But, um, I don't know. I don't know. I think your brain does a good job of sorting it out on its own. It's kind of evolved to do that, you know, so I don't overthink, you know, how to think too much. Okay. <laughs> for lack Excellent. Of a better way of putting it. You know? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, okay. So top programming languages to keep on our radar in 2020. Oh, well, Python's still king, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there used to be a whole lot of like emerging ones like Go or whatever, but um, I think Python's still where it's at, guys. So, uh, you know, that's that's what people want. If anything, I'm seeing more of a shift toward Python and away from things like R and other competing languages. Mm. Uh, Scala, though, I think that's worth mentioning. Um, yeah. Although even there, I think it's probably playing second fiddle to Python. Scala's relevant because... Um, Spark is written in Scala. So if you want to like write the most efficient Apache Spark code, you're going to do it in Scala. But they've been investing a lot in the Python side of Spark lately too. So that reason to learn Scala for Spark is kind of going away. You know, there's really not anything that you can't do in uh, Python that you can do in Scala anymore with Spark. And the performance difference isn't that big anymore either. So Hmm. uh, yeah, Python is still where it's at. Dang, awesome. And uh, so we've covered a lot of topics today and I just want to make sure that uh, we kind of end this on the, the note that you want. And so what is the message that you want people to leave the interview with? Um, I think the main message is that AI and machine learning and Python and everything does not have to be hard. You know, I mean, these are mm-hmm. very scary sounding topics that have a lot of, you know, really intimidating academic jargon behind it. But the fundamental ideas behind them are pretty simple. And a lot of these technologies are very easy to use. So don't be afraid to like dive in and learn this stuff. Um, it could change your life. Yeah. Excellent. And the call to action, the platform is yours. Where do they connect with you? Where they, uh, we've got some, a Manning homepage. We've got your website, Sundog. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, Manning.com, they have a live video feature there you can find on their website. So if you go there, you'll find a bunch of different offerings from me and other authors on their platform as well. And if you want to like hit me up directly, head, head over to sundog-education.com and you'll find my courses there as well, as well as ways to follow me on all the various social media thingies. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much the show. So thank you so much for uh, joining the Profitable Python and letting us borrow your brain. Uh, you're certainly an amazing human. Thank you. Thanks. It was a fun talk. Yep.